All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of V Brown Bag. Um, tonight, uh, we've got a very special guest. So I've been a member or a subscriber of Linux Academy for um, a couple of years now. And um, the other week, uh, I, was, I was out trolling for uh, speakers and presenters for, for the, the Python episodes that we've been hosting. And I was very fortunate to run into Keith Thompson. Keith Thompson uh, runs, or not, excuse me, not runs, he's the, he's the Python instructor over at Linux Academy. And so we got to chatting, and I've watched uh, the, m most of his videos, not, not all the way through, but um, kind of like when I ran into a problem, I would go look at his videos for the for, for the solution to that specific problem. Uh, so we got to chatting, and he agreed to come on. So um, we are graced with his presence tonight. Um, so tonight on V Brown Bag, we are going to be building small sharp tools in Python with Keith Thompson. Um, but first. Let's do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, getting on the conversation, if you at vbrownbag on Twitter or hashtag vbrownbag on Twitter, I will be monitoring the tweetosphere to answer all of your questions and to pose them to, to Keith. Um, if you are in the live studio audience this evening, I will also be monitoring the Q&A session. Um, you can ask your questions in there and then I will also be uh, posing them to Keith from, from there as well. So um, with that, we are going to continue with Keith Thompson on our Python for DevOps series, talking with Python developers and learning how to level up our skills. Um, so, Mr. Thompson, are you there, sir? I am here, yes. Hey, how's it going? All right, um, uh, before we get started, um, a, a little bit about yourself. Uh, how long have you been coding and, and uh, what, what got you into doing this for Linux Academy and impressing so many of your fans out there? Um, I guess, yeah, so programming-wise, I've been doing this for about a decade at this point. Um, I started, and I did, hadn't actually programmed any prior to college, and then I was a mathematics major and got really bored with just doing math, so I uh, swapped to computer science and then uh, kind of never looked back uh, from <laughs> that point so on. It's boring. It's just so, it's so easy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, it worked out nicely because I had taken all the math that I needed for the engineering portion of things by the time I swapped to engineering my sophomore year, so mm -hmm. uh, that was actually pretty good, but... I thankfully uh, was introduced to Python pretty early on because I took one of my my intro to object-oriented programming course as an honor student. I was the only one in the class of like 100 people that did it for honors or whatever. Oh. And so my professor uh, told me to just rewrite everything in Python and tell me how I liked it basically. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And uh, I don't think he ever graded those things, but I did it. And so I learned a little bit about Python and uh, then went on to... Uh, have an internship where the guy who's supposed to be my mentor and kind of mm -hmm. walk me through my my co-op as they're called in mm -hmm. uh, engineering school, mm -hmm. uh, he quit like three days before I got hired. So they gave me his book of business and they're like, "Yeah, you're a smart kid. Good luck." And so I learned a lot of Python by uh, inheriting a consultant book of so, business. So I, trial by fire. That's that's your recommendation oh, yeah. for I, anybody I getting into the no field. I had no idea what I was doing. Totally. So I I went in there like, "Oh, this is a web development place. I think I want to do desktop stuff." Um, like at that point, I was pretty sure I wanted to do C Sharp forever. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, so I inherited a bunch of Python web projects that I had no idea what I was doing and learned a ton about it and then kind of never looked back. I've done a lot since then in Python and I'm a, I would call myself a polyglot, so I program in a lot of different languages, but uh, Python's one of my one of my early ones, one of the ones I've always loved and yeah, it's been good. And the nice. Linux Academy, I actually uh, got there through YouTube, ironically enough. They found me. Oh yeah, and yeah. So because that, uh, because you uh, do uh, coding stuff on on YouTube. 
I do. Yeah, I actually have a little slide uh, that my about me slide will give you kind of oh, the information well, about that stuff. But. Let's let's uh, let's flip over to that uh, uh, for you. And actually, this would this would be a, a great question to pose to you specifically. Um, a lot of people ask me how much, or a lot of people say, "Oh, I I can't get into programming because I I'm, I'm not good at math." What um what would you a a mathematician say to that? How much how much math do you need to be a, a oh, functional I'm, and workable programmer? I am nowhere near a mathematician, um, but I, I would say the amount of math that you really need isn't actually that high unless you're doing um, certain types of programming, mm. right? So can you see my screen, my uh, presentation yes. here? Building small sharp tools with Python. Cool. Um, but yeah, if you, if you were to ask me how much math you need, it's really not that much. Um, most of it would be the math that you actually learn throughout like grade school and high school, uh, depending on, you know, how, how things were taught. But basically, I would think the most important thing you need if you're going to be doing things is going to be algebra. Um, okay. And that's really just having a concept of like how functions work and in general, but like people don't even think about like, oh, the functions I did in math when it was like f of x equals 3x plus 5, mm -hmm. how that is actually comparable to what we do in programming, but it's very much uh, the same thing um, in terms of like we pass something in as x and it goes through this routine. The only difference there is that in algebra, the functions tended to be uh, super linear, like they couldn't branch, right? Right, right. Um, so it's really not that bad. I would say that's probably about all the math you really need, unless you're doing like graphics programming or you're doing some big uh, data science stuff. There's there's things there, and even then, that stuff gets kind of abstracted away to where you can you can get into data science and this and that without actually needing to know all of the linear algebra and stuff that is used behind the scenes. And that but, is the response I'm going to use from now on whenever anybody asks me. That's that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I, if somebody's like, oh, I'm not good at math, I would tell, like, that doesn't matter. Like, do you like me? Like, so some of the best programmers I've ever met are musicians, right? Like, the, this is a big trend in, in programming is that musicians are love programming. And it's really just because, like, you think about it, it's it's kind of all math behind the scenes, right? It's all little building blocks. like Right, circle make, of and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff, right? Like, a lot of it's really intuitive in that in that sense. And um, I think once you think about programming in terms of, like, I'm just trying to do little steps, and then I'm going to break these into things that are repeatable, then it starts making a little bit more sense. And then you look at it, and you're like, there's really not a whole lot of math here. You heard it here, folks. That's that's the yeah. answer right there. Awesome. Um, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little bit about me. So like I said, I'm a polyglot, which just means I've programmed in a lot of different languages. Uh, professionally, I've programmed in Java, C Sharp, Python, Ruby, Go, um, JavaScript, obviously, as one for a web developer. Uh, eh, there's probably a couple other ones in there. I always... I had a thing where I was trying to sneak other languages into a previous job where I would just be like, hey, I need to work on this little project. Let me spin it up in Haskell. And uh, I, never made it, I never made it through with the Haskell one. I always got shot down. But I was like, look how fast this thing is. It's amazing. Like once I what finally get it to trial. Yeah, uh, it's, it's great. But so yeah, I, I love programming languages uh, quite a bit. And like right now I program uh, in a, a lot in Python. And then I go off and I do stuff in like Elixir and functional programming when I'm um, just needing to kind of decompress and learn something new. Cool. But I'm a training architect for Linux Academy. Training architect's the official title that we have. Um, but I work on mostly, I'm the Python, or I guess my title's a little bit fluid at the moment. I've done a lot of different things for Linux Academy in terms of the courses I've taught. So I've taught on a bunch of things on Chef because I happen to know a lot about Chef. Um, 
Nginx and I've taught a course on Go and I've taught three soon to be four courses on Python. Uh, two of those are actually targeted towards uh, systems administrators. And it's basically, you know, one of those things that Python is amazing as a programming language, but you don't need to know the entire thing in order to exercise it and use it if you're not doing like web development or, you know, what would classically just be like software engineering sort of stuff, right? There are a lot of features in the language that you never actually need to use if you want to do it for certain things. So I created a couple courses that basically cover Python 2 and Python 3. Uh, the Python 2 one's a couple years old, obviously, but that, uh, you know, take you through the basics of the language and um, some of the extra things. And in fact, the thing we're going to go through now, building this small tool, is uh, kind of the final project of that course. Oh, cool. Um, and it, uh, it's a little bit intense in the, in the course. Like I, we, we go from I teach you all these things to let's put it in a full-blown project because that's kind of scary for people a lot of times. But I hope we can uh, kind of get through it and understand what we're doing and feel a little bit more comfortable going from zero to having a full working tool that we could share with somebody else by the time we're done. Mm, very cool. But besides doing the Linux Academy thing, uh, like I said, I occasionally release tutorials on coderjourney.com, uh, which I spelled wrong there. There's an N in journey. And, uh, and that started as a YouTube channel. Like that was my thing. That was actually, I was a web developer by day and I, I love to teach people things. So I started a YouTube channel and eventually that got me noticed by uh, somebody recruiting for Linux Academy. And then um, the rest is history as they say. So awesome. it's been a little while since I released anything on there, but that's, covers a wide range of things from Docker and Kubernetes to a little bit of intro to Python stuff uh, to Rails and front-end web development using stuff like React. So there's it's basically whatever I feel like teaching, I can kind of put stuff over there. But I'm about to start uh, putting out some more content there. So I figured I'd mention it. But I'm Keith cool. Thompson everywhere because there are too many Keith Thompsons in the world for me to get my full name. And uh, yeah, fun fact, I love table tennis, which is what this, uh, my profile picture is pretty much everywhere. It's just me bouncing a uh, ping pong ball. But yeah, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the problem we're going to solve today. And that is pretty simple. We have a database that needs backed up, but we want to do that both remotely and locally. And we could write some scripts to do this and automate some things using like bash or whatever. But sometimes it's nice to just have a tool that is, is, uh, has a good UI to it. If you make, if that makes sense, right. It has a good experience just using it. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to build a tool called PG backup. And this in particular, if I can come over here and can you read this? I usually blow these things up for presentations anyway, but I think this is probably big enough. Uh, yeah, that, that's totally legible. Cool. Good deal. Um, yeah, our goal here is basically to have a tool that we can say PG backup, give it a database connection string, and then we can tell it a certain driver that we want to use. So we can use S3 as a driver and then give it a bucket name, or we can alternatively say we want to use a local driver and give it a path to a file that we want to write to. And um, we're starting from scratch. I have a readme because I didn't want to make you watch me type all of this out. But uh, this is where I think a lot of projects should start. Start with writing some documentation and, and visual, you know, visualizing what you want it to be used like. And this is kind of, this is occasionally called readme-driven development. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the big problems with programming in general is that people try to program too much before they ever exercise it. 
and they don't think enough about the big picture before they start thinking about the units or the little things that they're going to have to implement. Like we look at this problem and we go, oh, cool, I'm going to have to interact with S3 at some point or, oh, cool, I'm going to have to write a file that has some content from it. Um, and so we occasionally think about those lower level things without thinking about like, okay, well, what does it look like for me to use it from the top level? Like, because occasionally you'll find little tricks around that where you go, well, I guess if this is the only way I'm ever going to use it here, then um, I can bypass some other feature and never need to implement that thing. And that's one of the benefits of TDD also. So test-driven development allows you to do this, where you say, this is how I'm going to use this piece of code. And then you let the test drive you to the implementation. And then you prevent yourself from kind of over-implementing things. So you're not implementing extra functions that you don't need, hopefully. Um, unless they're private functions that aren't supposed to be used by other people. But yeah, so this is this is a good place to start. So we're going to go from creating an entire project here inside of one directory with a readme. And I like to start here because Python has the Zen of Python, which are you familiar with? Oh, yeah, import this. Yes, there you go. <laughs> but it uh, it has the this idea that there should be one and preferably only one best way to do something, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. except for create a project in Python, apparently. So <laughs> that is, there's like a million and a half different ways people go about creating projects in Python, like how they like to structure them and this and that. So this is one of those opinionated things that you just have to go about doing. So I like to start here because the blank canvas problem where you start digging into a problem with nothing inside of a directory can be kind of scary. You're like, well, how should I structure the folders and, and this and that and what actual files do I need? So that's, that's where we're going to begin. Um, how do I mute this so I can cough real fast? Um, little uh, upper right hand corner is a little green microphone. If you click on that. Upper, ah, okay, cool. <laughs> So professional of me uh, to ask how to cough. But OK, so what we're going to do is actually dig in here. And you pointed this out in our, our pre-show uh, talk. But I'm using Visual Studio Code, which is a pretty great editor. Uh, I'm historically a Vim user, but I confuse people when I use Vim because I move around too fast. Right. So uh, for the sake of being a person who teaches people about programming all the time, I figured I should do something that's a little bit more approachable. And uh, so I've been digging into Visual Studio Code for the last like two or three weeks, and it's pretty awesome. But I'm actually using the servers that you get if you are a Linux Academy subscriber that uh, you get sort of many units. So you can spin up different size servers to use. We call them cloud playgrounds. But I'm remotely connected to one of these. And I, it's an Ubuntu box with uh, Python 3.7 installed. And I'm going to be doing my development on there. And then I have another server spun up that is running a Postgres server that we're going to use to kind of test our work as we continue going through this. Cool. Awesome. But inside of here, we have our readme here. And when you're working with a Python project, there are a couple things that you kind of need. Uh, one of them is going to be a setup.py if it's something that you're going to have be installable. So that can be a little bit annoying to write sometime, but uh, Kenneth Wrights has the setup.py that he just kind of shares as like a template. Uh, he's, if you're unfamiliar with um, him, he's the guy behind requests and pipenv and a bunch of other things. Um, he's he's pretty prolific, but this is a good starting point that I've I've come to actually start to like using. So we're just going to go in here and grab this, and then we'll walk through it and sort of see what's going on here. So we'll just go ahead and pull in the setup.py. 
But in here, um, thankfully, he has just a bunch of constants that we have to change. And um, we'll get to this in a second. But, um, but basically, we're going to come in here and change some stuff around. So we want PG backup, uh, remote, and local database backup tool. And I'm not going to change the rest of this stuff. The versions kind of aren't super specific for us to use. And that's all we're going to work with right now. We'll bounce back in here later when we actually go and set some things up. But the other thing that we're going to want to do, since we're working in a Python project, is set up a virtual M for ourselves so we can install some things, uh, whether it be development dependencies or actual uh, dependencies that we need for our tool that we're building. <laughs> so have you ever used pipend? Uh, yeah, actually, um, in one of our previous uh, talks, um, Calvin Hendricks Parker walked us through the the, the glories of using a virtual environment and why everybody needs to um, uh, le learn how to do that toot suite. Um, he's he's a, a, a big proponent of that, as as is everybody. Well, so a, a lot of the beginner people like myself that that got into this, we you know started you know importing and installing and pipping things you know directly mm -hmm. into the into the main, and uh, so I've I've been furiously uninstalling it um, and and trying to push everything into virtual environments now. Short, long answer to a short question. Yes, um, most of our viewers are familiar with it. Sorry. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, but. Yeah, pip is a good enough installer, and virtualenv has existed for a long time for creating these things. But the fact that we have one tool that can kind of unify those, and pipenv does more kind of behind the scenes to make sure that you don't have version conflicts with subdependencies, which is kind of nice. But we're right. going to just set this up with uh, Python, and that's going to be Python 3.7. And um, this will go off and just do the right thing for us here. It'll set it up in kind of a hidden directory. Oh, did I not install pipenv yet? Apparently, I did not install. Pip 3.7 install user u pipenv already satisfied. Okay, we'll just give this something to work with here. Pipenv not found. Huh. Okay, well that's cool. Well, let's go debug what's going on here. Cool. So if we take a look at which pipenv, it should give us nothing, which makes sense. Uh, we should have a local directory inside here. So let's do lsao. And this is going to give us a local bin, hopefully. Local bin, okay. It's right, oh, it's not in our path. That's why. Okay, cool. Uh, let's go and fix that up. Normally, I would care more about where I'm putting this, but for the time <laughs> being, this is fine. I'll do home dot local bin. Cool. All right, now which pipenv? Hey, we have pipenv now. Good deal. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and just set it up with Python 3.7. So yeah, the pip file gives us a place to actually go and put our dependencies, which we're building a really simple tool here. So it's not actually going to have a ton of dependencies. In fact, the only one it's going to have is going to be uh, Boto3 for doing interactions with AWS. But I already have the server hooked up with some credentials, so I don't accidentally share those with everybody and have a huge bill by the time this thing is uh, done and uh, <laughs> over nope. with. But Nobody watching would do that. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. There's always, you never know. There's, there's some bot somewhere with a little bit of computer vision in it that just knows like, Hey, there are enough gibberish characters that are this long. It's probably an AWS key. I should give it a shot. So you never, you never know. But you uh, yeah. So now that we have this, we can get some nice things just visual studio code wise, which I think are pretty cool. And I, uh, do you care if I show off some of this stuff or? In, no, 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 please go ahead. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, so the, the big thing we're going to want to do here is select our interpreter. And unfortunately, it didn't find it, which is kind of weird. Uh, normally, what would happen is it would actually go and find the, oh, there you go, it's reading some stuff. So it might actually go and find it. Hmm, bummer. But you can actually specify the interpreter that you want it to use. And I guess for right now, let's go ahead and since this thing, whole thing is being weird, we'll just have it use this one. But it will allow you to install a bunch of other things that it can run automatically as long as it knows which version of Python to use. And actually, I think I might just open a new window and figure out. The remote extension gets a little weird sometimes. So we're gonna go ahead and connect to host. And it opens a thousand windows. That's a feature, I guess. But I haven't played with it enough yet. Okay, so we're gonna open this directory, and now we still don't get it. Weird. Super odd. But okay. In this case, we can set our Python path, and ours is going to be pipenv shell, right? We're gonna go ahead and do this. And this is gonna be our Python path. So it's gonna be this plus Python. So we can actually go down here, click this, and then just paste in bin Python. Oh, is it not gonna let us do that? Weird. Okay, we're gonna manually do this the hard way, I guess, by editing some configuration stuff in Python. Okay, then workspace contains pip file, but pipenv was not found. Make sure that you Hmm. I'm real confused now. It worked in dev. Yeah, we're doing it live <laughs> now. <I guess. laughs> this is the, the beauty of doing these things in this hmm. way. Okay, anywho, it's figured it out. We, we now have it set explicitly. I have no idea why I didn't pick it up on its own. But this is kind of cool uh, to actually see what it does. So when you decide you want it to use something here, like in this case, we want it to use black mm -hmm. as an auto formatter it will go and actually realize that, oh no, it won't because it didn't figure out it was in a pip end. That stinks. Okay, well, whatever. We're gonna, we're gonna just do this ourselves. We're gonna use black and, uh, have you ever used black? Has anybody talked about this on any of your episodes? Um, I've used AutoPep 8 um, and I just recently heard about black on, on Michael Kennedy's uh, Talk Python to Me podcast, but I have not used it myself yet. Okay, cool. Because uh, as far as I know, they're pretty similar. Uh, Black's Pretty cool. I've done a decent amount of work in Go and Go FMT or GoFumpt, and just having automated, uh, automatically formatted code is amazing because then you never have to have that discussion again. Like when you're talking to other people, you don't have to be like, oh yeah, well this is the way we do it here. Right. That, that kind of talk. So yeah, we're good. Anyhow, so more ruthless and and it's it's a it's it's very strict as as opposed to AutoPep eight or something. Uh, I think. I haven't really dug into it very much. Uh, a couple things I like about it. It's super fast, which is always good. Hmm. And uh, yeah, there's no like configuration file that I needed to have for it, which is kind of nice. 
Gotcha. Um, so I just kind of roll with those, but cool. it, it looked pretty good. So when I was deciding which one was going to be my auto formatter, I figured I'd go with the one with a simple, colorful name. <laughs> but okay. So anywho, back to doing this project stuff here. We're going to create a new folder, and this is kind of a standard thing you can do uh, to just create a package for your uh, actual project. So this is our kind of a repo structure here. We have PG Backup. That's the name of our repo. And then inside of there, we're going to put our package. So PG Backup, backup the package. And then to create this as a package, we need to have an underscore underscore init.py within there. And this way, we can do something like import PG Backup. And then every other file we put in here is going to be a module that we're working with. And this is one of the, the benefits that you kind of get with working in a, uh, a language like Python, right? Is that we can structure our code in ways that just sort of make sense. So we're going to break ours up into the things that we need to do. So if we come back over here, there are a few things we need to do. One, we need to interact with Postgres on one. That's kind of one responsibility that we have. And we're going to have to dump whatever this is. So we'll have to figure out how we want to do that. That'll probably go into its own module. And then the other one, this, this entire thing, is all related to the representation that the user is seeing. So this, I like to put this in a CLI module. And then we have a couple of different things here where uh, what this actually is going to do behind the scenes is all about storage. So we're going to have a third module that's all about storage. It's going to handle what if I'm doing S3 storage or what if I'm doing local storage, that kind of thing. So we're going to build it chunk by chunk. And I like to start with the one that you're going to use first. So I always start with the CLI just to make sure that we can get to this to kind of look the right way, even if it doesn't do anything to start off. So to begin, I'm going to do a CLI.py. And then in here, there are a couple different ways you can go about building a CLI in Python. And uh, there's one built into the standard library called argparse, which uh, for being packaged with the standard library, I think is pretty good, and it's a good place to start. Uh, there's also Click, which is a library that you can install and build things from. Argparse is a lot more verbose, but I, I think it's kind of nice to not have very many dependencies in the tools that you're making. It makes it a lot, them a lot more portable. We, we still have to have Boto3 as a dependency, which is kind of a bummer, but um, not relying on something else like Click is just going to make it a little bit easier for somebody to, to install this. Hmm. So from here, we're going to do from Argparse import, and then we're going to take a couple things here. We're going to do action and argument parser. And then basically, we want to create a parser. And I think this, this might be a concept that sort of gets a little weird for people, because you're thinking, oh, I'm going to make a CLI. I'm going to go through and uh, do things here. Well, what if we had a, you know, a factory function in order to do that? So this is this function's entire job is to create a parser that can be a CLI and just configure it and then return it. It's not going to actually like do the calling. We would do that later on when we define our main function. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and make an argument parser here and have this have a description that is backup backup a PostgreSQL database locally or to AWS S3. And the nice thing about how we're kind of structuring this here and breaking things into kind of um, little chunks like storage is its own thing. And then storage has different like um, 
adapters, basically, if you will, so we have different drivers for these things, is that even though we're starting out with locally or to S3, you could pretty quickly make this, oh, you can store it locally or S3, or you can actually store it to something in Azure, or you can store it to whatever the blob storage is called inside of GCP, and you could add those by just adding like small things in different areas inside your, your application. Hmm. So we're gonna add an argument. So this is how you go about actually defining the, uh, the structure of your, um, your CLI. And this is a little bit magic in the way it does it. And I think I like the way Click does this a little bit better. It distinguishes between an argument and an option. But to distinguish those using argparse, you just don't put dashes. So URL is gonna be a positional argument for our tool. And then we can define the help text here, which is gonna be URL of database to backup. And then we need another one that's going to be our driver. So a good thing to go back here is just, here we might just take a picture of this too. And by take a picture, I mean move a comment over. I don't know what I'm talking about in there. But <laughs> so we, we have this as our positional argument and then dash dash driver actually takes these two arguments and then they're kind of separate. And I intentionally, um, designed this tool this way so that I could show you how to create a custom way to parse in arguments. Um, but I also like the way that the ergonomics of being like, oh, here's my driver. This is its name. This is its whatever. <laughs> I like the ergonomics of that, but uh, it, you can't actually do that with ArcParse out of the box very well. So this is the how and where to store backup. And then what you do here is we can actually specify a lot of other things. So nargs is number of args. We need two every time. Um, we can specify this to be required, which is true. And actually, I think I have this pulled up so you can take a look at it. Uh, documentation is your friend. Uh, every time I'm teaching, like one of the things about the, the lessons that I do is I always link to the documentation of the functions and the classes and things that I'm using so that people can look this stuff up and figure out how to kind of parse the docs and really understand what they're doing with um, aspects of the standard library or how should I call a certain function or, or this and that. But one of the uh, things here is if we go and we search for um, add argument, uh, there's probably gonna be 30 of these in here. That's probably not the best way to do it. Argument defaults, adding arguments. Okay, here we go. It has a lot of options. As you can see here, we have args, cons, default types, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot you can do here. Um, but one that's a little bit off the beaten path is action here, which is you can actually specify that you want it to do something. And that's gonna actually go and like call a function uh, potentially, like you could actually specify that you want it to automatically lowercase the strings that are being passed into you. Or in our case, we're gonna give it a class that it can initialize and then use the uh, kind of a special uh, dunder method called call. And that will allow it to go off and manipulate some of the data. So this is a little bit more of a complicated use case, but it's kind of nice to see how it works. So we're gonna specify an action and we're gonna call this driver action. And we're gonna come up here and create this. So in the other tutorials that you've been, or I guess they're not all tutorials like this, you're not doing kind of necessarily uh, live programming for some of them I'm assuming, but um, how much like uh, object-oriented programming has been covered? Uh, very, very little. Uh, we, we, we went through some unit testing uh, a couple of episodes back um, and we used classes to, to define pieces of the unit tests. 
um, but but we haven't gotten into that. Um, that's that's more of a, an advanced topic. <laughs> exactly uh, is what I would say, right? For the most part, uh, classes and object orientation are not something that you need if you want to use Python to like automate stuff, uh, right? Because it's at that point you you can use it as a scripting language, and it works great for like packaging up functions and doing. It can do a lot of really neat stuff before you ever touch classes, <laughs> which um, is why in my scripting course this is the only time we ever use a class for anything. And I almost apologize for it because I'm like, well, it's good to know that there are things you can do here, but like, I'm, I'm sorry that this is the one time we had to define a class, but um, let's go through what this is actually doing. So when you're looking at classes, uh, classes are essentially blueprints of things and they're, they're blueprints of uh, an idea, right? Like a, a classic one that I like to use is the idea of a car, right? So we're just gonna go in here and uh, classes have properties, which is the state that they hold, and then they have methods, which are the actions that they can take. So a car makes perfect sense because a car has things and it can do things. That's basically when you would want to use a class for something. Um, and a good like, the, unfortunately, there are these magic methods that start with underscores that are all kind of hidden in there that you have to know how to use. But this is the initializer for it. But uh, you could do something like this is engine, which has a default of like uh, one of V8 or something. And then you could have tires, which uh, defaults to um, this thing has no wheels. So has no tires, but four. <laughs> you can hold on to these things. Yeah, exactly, right? It should just be four. Um, and I want to show you sort of how this works behind the scenes, and then it'll make a little bit more sense, I think. So. Once you have defined, you're just defining, this is what a car does, mm -hmm. and then it can drive, right? And then there's this magic self that you put in here, which just specifies that you call this function on the object itself. And then uh, it would go off and do something here. And then it has access to um, its own information. Uh, with my engine, this is real, I'm really making this up on the fly, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, here we go. Oops, F string here. Let's actually copy this and we'll come down into the Python REPL. Here we go. Um, also, this is one of the best features about any sort of dynamic language is a, uh, a REPL, the read, evaluate, yes. print loop. Yep. Because like in this case, I'm, I'm just hacking, like I'm, this is just coming off the top of my mind, right? But I'm able to actually go and utilize it. So we described what a car is, like what it has and what it can do. And then, but not all cars are the same, right? So like I have a Honda, which is a car that has an engine that is like definitely a four cylinder, right? It's nothing, nothing special here. <laughs> cylinder. And then tires, it would have like tires, be like uh, one, two, three, four. And so now, I, like Honda is an instance of a class. So we, we created the blueprint of it. This is one specific instance of it. So it holds on to its own state. And then it has its own uh, functions that are on it. And when a function is connected to an object, it's called a method. Mm. So now we have Honda, drive and it'll give information like it's accessing state that wasn't passed into a function. Every other time you work with a function, um, it's gonna have to have stuff passed into it or it's gonna have to access some sort of global uh, information. But yeah, this is, 
this is my five-minute introduction into object-oriented programming and, and what it is. So if I uh, did a horrible job of explaining that, then I, I feel really bad. And if no. I confused anybody, my apologies. Well, but, uh, the, the good news is is that they can re stop and rewind and, uh, and watch it again if they, if they're, they were confused. Um, that, that's that's as, as good as any five-minute definition of a class as I've ever heard. <laughs> I've, I've been working on my... Uh, my explanation of object-oriented programming for a while because honestly it is one of the more confusing things that exists in programming yeah, totally and yeah so anywho back to the task at hand we were creating an action here which um the beautiful thing about how you initially like actually call or create a new instance of something uh is it works just like a function right so like we can pass around functions and if we don't use the parentheses so uh for instance like round is a, a built-in function and it doesn't we can just pass that around until we actually call it using parentheses in python right so that's what we're doing here and this is the like if you just pass this right here you're actually kind of passing around the initializer function to create an instance of a thing so behind the scenes what this is going to do is it's going to take the information that it has and it's going to pass it into it in the right positions that it needs and then it's going to explicitly call this call function uh, or method, sorry, um, behind the scenes. So this is all the magic is to it. Like they could have probably done this using a, uh, a function and you would just have to specify a lot more return values, but it was easier for them to say, we're just gonna pass in this state that you don't need to know about and we're gonna go from there. But what this driver action needs to do is it's receiving a bunch of different things. It's receiving the parser, which is the actual argument parser. It's receiving a namespace, which is a special kind of class that literally just holds on to variables. Um, similarly to how our car had an engine and tires because car or objects hold on to their own state and then they have behavior in the form of methods. A namespace is a type of class that only holds on to state. It doesn't have any behavior. So it basically allows you to connect variables that are not in that like global space. So it's going to pass around this namespace. It's going to pass in the values that it got for the particular argument that you're working with. And then I, honest to God, do not know what option string does. I don't think I've ever used it. So <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to take in the destination, uh, the values, which since we specified it is going to have a number of args of two, and I should fix this down here, then it's going to be a tuple for us. And then we can do tuple unpacking here or sequence unpacking. Um, to just split that into two different variables at one time. And then we want to take this namespace and we're going to add some more variables to it. So we're going to say namespace driver equals driver dot lower. And that's because we're going to do some comparisons on it later. We want to make sure it's all in lowercase values. And then namespace destination equals destination. And what this will allow us to do is just connect more information to what we actually get when we parse arguments. So behind the scenes, if you imagine there's an action for everything here, uh, this is basically going to do namespace URL equals URL for the URL one, right? That's just kind of the default thing is it's going to take this namespace object and just pass it all the way through the parser and add more and more arguments to it and hold on to that information. Since we have a special case where we have two pieces that are not the same type of information, we need to separate it out into two different variables. So that is the, the complicated version of creating a parser here. Um, and the last thing we're going to do here is actually return the parser. So now we have a function that's going to generate a CLI for us. And then 
um, we can use this later on, but we only have to configure it in one spot. If we would like to go ahead and test this out, this is another thing, like it's good to not write a ton of code before you exercise it. Uh, that's how, I mean, I do uh, in college, I backed myself into so many corners on programming projects because I'd write like a thousand lines of code in Java before I ever ran the thing. And then it wouldn't <laughs> compile. And then I'd be like, oh, okay, I just need more conditionals or something, right? I would continue to just write code. Like when you're trying to code yourself out of a corner, you're in a rough spot. So it's good to, as often as you can, try to exercise the code, which is another reason why TDD is pretty awesome because you can run your tests, they can exercise the code and verify that it's even doing the thing that you need to do without you needing to manually do things. And the, the computer can run those tests a lot faster than you can. But in this case, what we can do is just kind of a, a shortcut here is we can just call create parser. And so this will give us a parser. And then parser dot parse args is the actual um, name of the function that you call on a parser to go off and exercise the, the CLI here. And from here, we can do something like Python and pg backup cli.py. And it's gonna go off and give us whatever kind of help text we have already so we can see how the usage would be working out. And this is what you get for free using arg parse is it will f create some help information to you uh, for you rather, and then um, give you some default errors if what people pass in isn't valid information. So that is gonna be working out just fine for us. There are some tweaks we're gonna make to it, like this isn't really helpful, like driver and driver, that's actually not right. And I think we can fix that now by just adding a meta value that's gonna be driver and destination. And now if we go and we exercise this one more time, uh, it's apparently not meta, so let's go back to that meta var. That's what it is. Okay, save that, run it again, and now we can see that we just cleaned up our, our documentation a little bit as we were going along. But this gives us the CLI, so we built that. That's one of our units. The other two units we need are going to be the AWS portion, uh, the local storage, that's gonna be our storage portion. And then we also need to have the part that talks to a database. So we'll work on the database portion next, and I'm gonna call that PG dump. And this module's entire job is just going to be revolving around talking to a um, Postgres server and you know getting the information out of it. But we don't, actually have a Postgres library or anything like that. So I'm gonna use subprocessing in order to do this and just expect that the person who's utilizing our tool is going to have a Postgres client on their machine which will give them access to the PG dump utility. Um, so from here, we can do a few things. We're gonna go ahead and just create this as dump and it's gonna take a URL because we know that's what the user is gonna send us. And then we are actually going to use a little bit of error handling here, but we're gonna do subprocess and we can go ahead and import this. So import subprocess. And then we wanna do p open. And then it's just gonna be pg dump with the URL as the arguments. And then we wanna take standard out and we want to use subprocess.pipe. And this is gonna 
instead of writing it to standard out, it's going to put it into a file-like object that we can then pass off to something else. And this is going to allow us to really easily stream information from one function to another. And uh, in the case that that doesn't work for whatever reason, whether that be that uh, PG dump isn't on the machine or it couldn't actually connect to it, then we want to do an accept here. And this will be OS error as error. And usually you would just, you know, print something out here. So we'll just say error. And then oh. we'll go for it. A uh, quick question from from the audience. Uh, it was it was actually asking. So um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask I'm gonna state the question, but then I'm gonna go ahead and answer it. Um, oh, okay. So, so, so somebody in the audience is asking what's what's the uh, the try accept thing, and uh, we actually covered try accept blocks in a in a previous episode. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up which episode it was that that we that we did that in. Um, so, so Mike, uh, when uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll respond back to you with with that, with with the standard option of please watch all of our V Brownbag episodes and you'll you get caught up. No, um, uh, yeah, we we have so they were asking about what try accept blocks were, but we actually have covered that. So I don't want to derail you by having you go into the into the long deep tunnel of try accept blocks. <laughs> okay, well I can give my short like thirty second. Oh yeah, sure, uh, sure, please go ahead. Yeah, that's basically. If we know there's some code we can run that's potentially going to fail, like it, there's a good possibility it could air out. A good example of this is opening a file, right? You might not have the permissions to open the file or the file might not exist and you're trying to open it in read mode or something like that. That's like something that could pretty easily give you an error. In those situations, putting it in a try block, so nesting it underneath try, will give you the option to wait for an error or accept an error. And then if that error occurs, you can actually rescue from your um, that situation. Or you can you can fail gracefully, which is what we're gonna do here. Or you can actually, you know, maybe present some more information to a user um, to say, oh hey, we didn't actually have that. We're defaulting to something else and then continue on with a different uh, approach. So this basically just prevents the user from getting the Python stack trace thrown in their face. Cool. Um, but yeah, so actually, since we are going to um, fail gracefully, one of the things since we're building this to be a command line utility, if, if things go wrong, we want to fail with the right status code. So for that, we're going to use the sys module and we can exit with a status code of one, which is pretty standard. That way, if somebody decides to use this inside of a script and they want to verify that it worked, they can check to be like, hey, did the previous command actually succeed by seeing if the status code was zero? So this is actually all we need in order to um, interact with a remote database uh, is cool. assuming you have access to the PG dump utility. So I went ahead and made sure that I had a Postgres client on here. And so we can actually go ahead and see this. And we will open up Python, but we're gonna do Python path equals our current directory Python. And then from PG backup, import uh, pg dump and then we can do pg dump dot dump and then we'll give this the actual url so mine's going to be demo password at uh, let me go find this ip address here's the ip address for my server except for i'm missing a one that's an i um, and then my port is 80 because we don't have uh, 5432 open. But so now if I go ahead and I do this, 
it's going to create a dump for me, which is going to be a file. So that's what this is doing. When we're saying popen, and it's going to return, actually, we can go ahead and take a look at whoop, what dump is. What did I just do? Oh, okay, there we go. I've deleted this popen. So if we take a look at what dump is, it's a subprocess popen object, which is not admittedly super helpful, but it has a standard out on it, and which we set to be a pipe which is just kind of a placeholder um, file-like object. But now we can do dump dot, uh, we can write this out. So let's go ahead and open a different file. So we'll open dump dot SQL. We'll open it in write plus bytes mode because we know we're gonna get bytes back. This is something I just happen to know that it's, we wanna make sure that we're not manipulating any sort of string stuff. So we're gonna open a new file and then we're gonna do f dot write dump dot standard out because this is an attribute on there. Um, and then since it's a file-like object, we have access to read as a method on there. And then f close, we'll actually write all that stuff out. Is that, does everything I did make, make sense here? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. Um, and we can actually, I'm gonna leave this REPL open. So now we have access to a dump.sql here. And if we go ahead and open this up, you can see that it's a bunch of SQL that it got from a remote server. So. This is the actual database dump that we would need in order to kind of back this, like we could spin it back up from this uh, content. So the other beautiful thing that we just did there was by playing around with it to see how we would actually write this out to a file, this is literally all we need to do to do our local storage stuff. Is we know that we're gonna need to have an open file here, but we basically need to do output file, write, input file, read. And so that takes us over to working on our next thing, which is gonna be storage. So let's go ahead and create a new file here, storage.py. And we'll just, whoops, we'll just build the first one here, which is gonna be local and in file, out file. And it'll be in file dot write. Oh, nope, backwards here, out file, write in file read, and then we're gonna do uh, in file, close, out file, close. We're gonna expect these files to already be open by the time we get them. But that should get us a good chunk of the way there. And that leaves us with one other thing we need to implement, and that's our, gonna be our function that handles the S3 portion of things. This is gonna be a little bit more complicated, but let's go read some documentation before we continue on. So. All we really need to do is take a file-like object, because that's really what we're working with. That's what, since that's what the local version is expecting, if we can make our S3 version use a file-like object too, then it'll make it so much easier for us to kind of like mix and match our drivers and drop new things in, as long as they have a similar interface. So what this is gonna actually do is take in a file here that it, we want to upload, which is gonna be the standard out basically from the PG dump. It's gonna take a bucket name and then it's gonna need its, uh, its actual information to, uh, to connect, which if you're using Boto3, it can actually utilize your CLI or your AWS configuration file so you don't have to put this stuff in your code. And that's basically what I'm gonna expect anybody using this tool is gonna be using. And that would be something that we could, we could actually you know, recommend to our team or whoever's gonna be using this. So we are going to actually pass in the Boto3 client so that our storage here doesn't need to know anything about Boto3. Like it won't be the thing that has the, uh, 
the dependency on Boto3, we're going to inject that dependency. And this is something that you can do because it's a dynamic language and we don't have to specify the types that we're working with. But we're going to have an M file, a bucket name, and the name of the file that we actually want to work with. And from here, we're going to be using this upload file object thing. So we're going to do uh, client.upload file obj in file bucket and name. So these are both of our storage approaches and that'll actually get us um, pretty much all the way there. The last thing we need to do is take all the little pieces that we've built. And this is where I like call it, you're building small sharp tools, right? Like by building it in little chunks that are real discrete and we can fit all of this in our mind. Now we just have Legos that we can kind of piece together and build exactly the functionality that we want. So I like going from the top down with a readme into what exactly our user interface essentially is going to look like and then building out the functional units that we need in order to do this. So the last thing we need to do is actually put it all together. And I'm back in the CLI.py because this is going to be something that's related to the CLI. And we're just going to create a main function that we can actually utilize um, inside of setup.py so that this can be something that's installable and will have a PG uh, backup um, executable when you do like a pip install PG backup. So in here, we're going to do a few things. We're going to import time. We're going to import Boto3, which we don't have yet. We need to go pip install that. Then we're going to do from uh, PG backup, or we can actually do this, just say from the exact same package, I want to go import PG dump and storage. And now we get to actually use our create parser. So we're going to do create parser parse args. And this is going to return the arguments to us as a namespace object. Um, which is just basically a placeholder that holds on to all these values. So it's going to have a URL, it's going to have a driver, and it's going to have a destination value that we can actually access off of it. And then from there, we're – oh, go ahead. Do you have a question? Uh, real quick, did you, did you mean to type uh, create parse or create parser? Oh, no, sorry. There you go. I, uh, I'm still not used to it giving me such fast feedback in terms of uh, using the squigglies. My mind just looks right past them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm used to the, you know, the good old, I write my code, I run it, I see what the error is, and I go and I fix it. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and uh, install Boto3 so that we have this here. So we can do pipenv install Boto3. And this will go off and add it to our pip file, and then uh, it should generate a pipenv block for us. But it's going to give us this weird error that's kind of annoying. Uh, because black is pre-release software, so we're going to copy this pipenv uh, lock pre business, and this will actually ensure that it can go off and create the pip file lock for us, which just holds on to the very specific versions that we have installed. Hmm. So, yeah, if you ever look in here, it's going to tell you the, the hash of the, this is exactly what the source code for this project looked like, hmm. um, you know, and that's that just ensures that you can have repeatable builds, which is, is pretty handy for like CI and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we have our arguments here. And next, we just need to go get our dump. And this is something we need to do every time, regardless of the driver that was passed into us. So as, as long as we have a URL, we should be able to go off and do this. So we're going to do pgdump.dump, .dump, args URL. 
And now we get to do the conditional bit where it's, we have options for drivers that people pass in. So we can say if args driver equals S3, then do something S3 related. So S3 stuff, uh, else local stuff. So that's basically gonna be the remainder of what we're doing here. Um, the S3 version is gonna be a lot more complicated because we need to create a client, which is gonna be Boto3 client for S3. And then we want a couple things here. One, you, you have to have unique file names in uh, S3 and we're gonna to wanna to have like whatever time we exported this probably. So in this case, we're gonna go ahead and create a timestamp. And we'll do that by doing time, strip time, and then we can make a custom time string here, which is gonna be um, year, month, day. And then we can do this by hour and then minute. And then we'll do time, local time to actually pass in the time. And yeah, this, I, I always hate these format strings, but once you kind of figure out what they're doing, it's really not too bad. Um, so next thing we're going to do is build up a file name. And this is one of those things that could be kind of complicated because you might want it to have a timestamp or you might want it not to have a timestamp. So in this case, it might be worthwhile for us to have a different function for this. So I would occasionally like take this, this would be something that would make sense to go in the dump because you're thinking about like, what is my dumps file name going to be? So let's go over here and we can just create this as def dump file name. And this can take a couple things. It, it'll take the actual uh, URL for the database and then it can take a timestamp for instance and have that be default to none. And then we can break up this actual uh, URL using something like split and uh, we can split it on slash, and then we can take the last version or the last uh, item in the list, and this will just be DB name. And then our actual file name could be, you know, if timestamp is present, then we would return something like uh, DB name dash timestamp. Uh, otherwise, return just DB name. Uh, dot SQL. Yeah, let's let's put a dot SQL on there just to be to be good stewards and show what exactly is going to be inside this file. So there we go. Get that over here. So yeah, we'll just create a little helper function. Kind of makes sense. It's going to work with the URL of the database. So we'll go over and put it with the rest of our code that's going to work with that kind of stuff. So we come back, do pg dump, and then dump file name of args URL and timestamp. And then uh, we can give ourselves a little bit of output while we're using the tool so it doesn't just look like nothing happened, which is good and bad, kind of depends on who you're talking to about that. So we're back in the database up to, and then args destination uh, in S3 as, and then we'll give the file name since we're not actually explicitly passing that in as an argument. And then the last thing we need to do is call storage S3 and then give it the client dump dot standard out, which is going to be our file like object, args destination for the bucket name and then file name for the name of the bucket or the name of the, the file. So that's the much more complicated way of doing it, but it's, 
nice to be able to reason about it, at least in my opinion anyway, that we, we kind of divided off some of the, the complicated bits, right? Like we don't need to exactly know what's going on here. We just need to say, hey, I want to store this in S3. Here are the things that you're going to need to do it. And that's, some people are reluctant to create different files when they're writing code, but break things into as many logical groups as you can think of as long as it makes it easier for you to piece them together and think about them or fit them in your head later on is kind of the way I like to uh, advise people to go about writing code. Uh, for the local stuff, we're gonna just open up the, the file here. So it's gonna be args, destination. And we're gonna open this in the right bytes mode. And then we'll go ahead and print out something here. So this will be backing up. Uh, we'll say database up locally to, and then uh, we can do outfile.name. And then storage local dump.standard out again and outfile. And that is the tool essentially in terms of uh, what's going on. So this is where we put everything together. And when somebody actually executes uh, what's going on here, MS SQL extension recommended, no thanks. Um, then this is everything that we need, but it's much easier to read a, you know, 16 line script and kind of see what everything is doing. Like, okay, I have a client, I have a timestamp, file names, et cetera, going down this line to be like, okay, this is exactly what the tool does. Cool. I'm good with this. Then it is to read like a, you know, if we put all of this stuff in the same file or you had like a 400 line bash script, uh, right. I, I would get lost in that. And, and this is why it's one of those things that not every system has, Python installed on it necessarily by default or, or whatever. But uh, if you have access to it, I would oftentimes recommend maybe using it for more complicated things uh, over something like a bash or a ZSH, just so you can reason about it later. Because your worst enemy is probably you from three months ago when it comes to code stuff. <laughs> and so uh, I like to not hate past me. And uh, Python's a good language for allowing me to do that. But uh, we do have one more thing that we need to do, and I, I'm sorry that I didn't fit this into an hour, but I'm really glad that I didn't do the TDD oh. portion because I would have talked way too long at that point. <laughs> um, but we're going to go back into setup.py, and this is a pretty cool feature that we have inside of Python, and that is the entry points bit here. And if you add entry points and console scripts, you can actually define a script that it will install. So if we do pg backup, this is going to go to the pg backup module or uh, package, and then the CLI module, and then inside of here, we're gonna call the main function. So that's kind of how this thing breaks up. So pg backup is the directory here that has the init.py, uh, CLI is the CLI.py, and then main is gonna be the function in there that we want to run. And what this allows us to do is when we actually go and install this, and we can install this in editable mode by doing pip install dash E, and then just giving a period inside of our repository here. It'll go off and install things. Um, and we actually did make a mistake here. We have to, since we're making an installable tool, we have to specify that it has dependencies on something. So up here, we're gonna add Boto3 because that is a dependency. So this is one of those things that if you're working with an application, like say you're building a Django app or something like that, then pip file is like pretty much all you need at that point because this is gonna specify your dependencies. But if you're creating a library or something that you could potentially like put on PyPy and then somebody else could install it, then you're gonna need to take whatever these packages are and you're also going to have to put them into the setup.py because PyPy and somebody else's machine when they're installing it doesn't do anything with the pip file. So there's a little bit of duplication there, which is kind of a bummer, but it's really only 
an issue when you're doing it in this situation. And a lot of people in this situation would just not use pipenv, but I like it a lot, so I still use it. But now that we have this installed, it's going to, and actually if we do that again, it should say it's gonna go off and try, yeah, there you go. So you'll see that since we specified that as a dependency, it's gonna go off and install um, Boto3 for us and all of Boto3's dependencies. And now that we have that, since we defined that console script, we actually have access to a PG backup tool. And uh, the moment of truth here is going to be actually uh, calling this. So we have demo, password, uh, and this is at whatever that IP address was. Let me go find that. Copy. On port 80, the sample database. And then if we want the driver to be local, we'll just call this uh, output.sql. It's gonna go off, backed it up locally. And then if we right. take a look at output.sql, we have, we have SQL, so we're in business. Uh, let's go ahead and delete these too. Oh, not, not in the rename. This is the downside to using VS Code is I have to use my mouse more than I, I'm used to using with being a Vim guy, but uh, it's probably, it's worth it in the long run. That's why I keep telling myself. Um, you, you and Calvin will get along great. He's all Vim. So fun story is uh, I picked up Vim because of his company. I don't think oh, it was really? specifically him. So yeah, I, I mentioned this to you, but when I was, yeah, yeah. When I was when I was an intern in college and I was given that book of business of the Python stuff, mm -hmm. the company that I worked for was like, okay, well, this, I don't know if they were like, this college kid's gonna like really hose us if he screws up all these projects. So we, we need to get him some training, right? Mm -hmm. And so they hired uh, Six Feet Up to come in, like consult with us for a little while and kind of teach some things. But uh, it wasn't actually him that was doing the teaching uh, for when I first like realized how awesome Vim was, it was, who was that? Uh, another one of his, I think, think his family member maybe that works in the same company, but oh, I was brother? like, holy, uh, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, his, his um, works there too, or he used to work there too. Gotcha. But I was like, man, this guy's a wizard. Like, look how fast he is editing all these things. So I, I went and I then learned Vim as I was like, you know, six months into programming or something. And <laughs> I've never looked back all because this, I saw somebody use it and I was like, they're so fast. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I have a speed problem, I guess. But <laughs> anyway, we're gonna come back in here, and I have a, an S3 bucket that I've spun up here called Python Backups. And so we'll do Python Backups, um, and then yeah, our file name is going to be. Uh, I don't know what we want to call this actually. Just, whatever, we'll just call it output. Actually, no, duh, we, we already did this. There we go. That's going to be where it goes and sends it. So I created it as sample 2009 for this. And uh, fingers crossed, it should be up here. So if we open this up, hey, there we go. We have a SQL file, and it's 55.6 kilobytes, so it's probably the output from the database. We have successfully created a backup tool that can go off and uh, interact with both S3 and some local stuff. And it really didn't take that much code, so I think... No. Uh, let's go and take a look at what it took all together. So we have one, two, we have a grand total of six lines in our storage. Uh, got me, you know, maybe 15 lines in here. So we're say 21. So the most complicated part was literally uh, creating the CLI for like the interface so I can explain the help text to you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's really not that bad and less than 100 lines of code for sure. 100% less than 100 lines. So, um, so uh, yeah. uh, one one other question from the audience. Um, 
this you, you indicated at the beginning of this that this was the the final uh, like the capstone uh, project in in a uh, in a thing that you're doing for Linux Academy. Yeah, yeah. So this is the um, well, this is the lecture project that I lead you through. So the way that the Python three scripting for systems administrator course, I think it has changed its title a few times, but the way it's kind of set up is I take you from knowing literally nothing about Python and the language. So I would teach you every single aspect of like, these are the types you're probably going to need. And um, I basically teach you everything but OO. Mm -hmm. um, and including like how to interact with third party packages and here's how you do error handling and here's like some of the more fancy things like list comprehensions and stuff like that. Uh, I'll teach some of those. And then towards the end, we get to the thing like, okay, well, let's put it all together. We're gonna build a project. And this is the project that you see me go through in the lectures. And then along with that, there are um, our hands-on labs, which will spin up an environment for you that has some code like already set up there and asks you to uh, go and execute on something there. That actually has a different project that you would go and build that I think, oh, what was that, what was that project? Oh, you build a thing to basically export user information um, or import and modify the information of a user using a JSON file format, if that makes sense. Nice, yeah, that's that um, does. So at least that's what it used to do. I might have changed it because I had too many students accidentally delete their own user from the account or like from the servers they were working on. Oops. So I might have changed that project, but that's what originally what it was. Um, yeah, so I'll give you a couple projects because I think with learning this stuff, like the hardest part about learning programming, once you get past the syntax, right? Syntax is going to be an issue anytime because we don't speak in, you know, this most right. of the time. Right. So once you, once you figure out syntax and you're understanding what's going on there, then the next like hurdle in learning is knowing how to apply it. And as adults, like the stuff that we learn doesn't really stick in our brain unless it's like immediately useful to us. And the only way to make something like this immediately useful to you is to have you use it inside of a project. So that's why I, I tried to take something that like, if you know, if you just looked at the readme, you would think like, oh, this, this is a pretty legit project we're gonna build. And yeah. I think it is. And it, you know, it only took us, like we did it in four line, or four different files and less than a hundred lines of code, but we had to cover a lot in order to do it. And we had to, to use a lot of different features to kind of understand what's going on. So the uh, the viewer is saying, time to go sign up for a Linux Academy account. So hey, there you go. Awesome. There you go. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm actually uh, if you're if you're interested in Python projects, the the course that I'm currently working on, which I'm allowed to talk about this stuff, uh, is called um, it's programming use cases in Python, oh. and uh, I, it's it's an entirely a project based course. So it's nothing but projects basically. And uh, like I'm, I just finished working on a section that, you know, I'm, it won't be released for a while unless we decide to kind of strip back some of the stuff in the course. But mm -hmm. um, it's another like CLI project that we're doing, but I utilize Click and we go through and we learn some of the newer features in Python like async uh, and await. So we can do um, concurrent programming. We actually oh, build a, we build a, uh, a load testing tool. So you, it's called assault is what we called it, but you can, uh, you know, give it a URL, you can tell it how many requests you wanna make and the, the level of concurrency that you wanna do. And it will go off and make those requests and return some statistics to you. And that's the the project that we we go through and build in this like section that I built over the last week or whatever, but. Um, do, do, so, you have a, do you have an ETA for when that's coming out or is that? Uh, I have no idea at this point. It's a, 
right now it's a pretty daunting course. It's a, it's a real meaty thing that I'm working on because I want to show you how to use Python for all sorts of stuff, including web development, including data science stuff, including automating stuff in all three of the like major cloud platforms. Um, so it's going to have a lot of different projects. And if we don't break it up into smaller courses, then this course can take a really long time for me to build. But if we, you know, release it as early access, then people would be able to get access to these, these projects kind of as I, I come up with them. And then with each one of these things, it's a lecture project that we go through and then also a, uh, um, a series of labs that are going to spin up an environment for you. You can connect to it through SSH or using Visual Studio Code. And, and in those, I can give you like, hey, in this lab, this is the, the project that you're working on. I need you to implement this feature. And then it can, there can be a follow-up lab that is like, okay, you already implemented this feature. It's going to use my solution, not yours. Sorry. Um, cool. And, so and like built, implement the next, yeah, it can, yeah, can yeah. build on itself and go from there. And um, so that that's just another way to get you in there and get your hands dirty uh, writing some Python code without you even needing to install Python on your machine because you can do something like this remote development that I'm doing here. Um, Can't wait. Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty excited. It's it's definitely a fun fun course to work on. It's a little bit daunting uh, to come up with so many projects because coming up with the projects is probably the hardest part for me at this point. But I enjoy it. Cool. Um, all right. Well, um, we <laughs> we actually we well. So I I don't mind going over when it's like a really fun topic like this. So um, but we have gone over. So so we need to we need to put a pin in this <laughs> and wrap it up. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah. Sorry for going over, but no, uh, I'm glad no, no. we did. You know, make wow. it through the project. And yeah, this, show some this, this is super fantastic. Um, that that was all of the questions. We've got a, a couple of people saying thank you. Um, bravo, job well done. Um, yeah, no, I, I, th I think that's it for for the questions. Um, some, we, we've got a, a smattering of applause. Um. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah, I'm, I uh, I enjoyed this, and I appreciate you inviting me to come on here. Cool. Um, th thanks. Thanks again. Uh, once again, uh, Keith Thompson from from uh, Linux Academy, talking talking with us about Python and how to build small sharp tools in Python. Um, Keith, th thanks again for coming on. Yep. No problem.